the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us today. We're going to talk with Lawrence Nelson. He's a board-certified chiropractic neurologist at the Concussion and Whiplash Clinic in Tigard. He's an advertiser of one of our sister stations. We'll let you know what uh, what they're doing and how we can support his work, and he can help you along the way. We'll also talk with uh, Gary Chapman. Dr. Ket Chapman is the author of God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Feel and Reflect God's Love. That interview coming up in the second hour of today's program. Today's program, by the way, is produced by James Blinn. Clark Hilton is engineer. Dan Rice, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Taking a look at some of the considerable headlines from the last several days, former National Security Advisor John Bolton warned in an interview airing on Sunday night that President Trump's White House possesses a danger for the republic or rather poses, but cautioned that congressional Democrats were almost as bad in their efforts to get him out of office. Well, during the interview, which was conducted by ABC News' Martha Raddatz, Bolton called Democrats um, remove Trump from the White House, a partisan catfight. Hours before the ABC News interview aired on Sunday, Representative Adam Schiff told NBC News Meet the Press that although he hasn't read Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened, his committee would be looking in uh, coming days to having Bolton testify. Schiff suggested Trump could be impeached once again. Oh, boy, wouldn't we like to relive that? Speaking to Raddatz, Bolton again hammered Schiff and Democrats for failing to broaden their investigation into Trump and accused them of impeachment malpractice with a narrow focus on Ukraine. He said Democrats were hasty because they didn't want uh, want to mess up the Democratic presidential nomination. Now I find that conduct almost as bad as somewhat equivalent to Trump, that they're torquing One of the gravest constitutional responsibilities the House of Representatives has, the power of impeachment around their presidential nomination schedule. And they failed utterly to accomplish what they wanted, Bolton charged. In fact, he went on to say they made things worse because their strategy fitted with the Trump political strategy, keeping it narrow and move it fast. So what did they do? The House advocate said, we have proven Trump is impeached forever and that he'd learn a lesson from it, end quote. Halfway down, the, he Bolton uh, went on to say, I think the House Democrats built a cliff. They threw themselves um, off of it. Halfway down, they looked up and saw me and said, hey, why don't you come along? Well, Schiff shot back on Twitter after the interview aired. Tonight, Bolton was pressed on why he didn't come forward and testify instead of saving it for the book. Bolton insisted it wasn't about the cash. Well, to quote Dale Bumpers during a different impeachment, when you hear somebody say this is not about money, It's about money. 
In other news, phase two of New York City's plan to reopen begins on Monday. An important milestone in the city that has been considered the epicenter of COVID-19, the outbreak in the U.S. During a press briefing last Thursday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said that based on the data he had received, the Big Apple was ready to enter its next phase in the reopening process amid the coronavirus pandemic. Phase two in New York City will allow outdoor dining at restaurants and bars and some in-store retail shopping, hair salons, barber shops, and nail salons are also able to reopen, as well as some offices, but only if they enforce social distancing guidelines. Other related developments, the World Health Organization sees record single-day increase in worldwide coronavirus cases, and coronavirus weakening may disappear on its own. That's a quote from an Italian doctor. We'll continue to follow that story. Major cities in the U.S. reported bloody weekends amid increased calls to defund and disband police departments in the wake of George Floyd's death in police custody. Chicago recorded at least 11 deaths and 67 wounded during an outbreak of violence, according to Fox 32. The deaths included a 3-year-old and a 13-year-old, both girls. The teenage girl was home Saturday night when she was struck in the neck from the shot fired from outside. She was pronounced dead at the local hospital. CBS Chicago reported that eight of those shot were children and teens. Four of them died. The three-year-old was with his stepfather at about 6.30 p.m. on Saturday when he was struck in the back. Witnesses told the station that the gunfire came from a blue Honda. That's all they have. Investigators in Seattle are looking into a deadly shooting at CHOP, the Capitol Hill organized protest zone that resulted in the death of a 19-year-old. Another individual is in critical condition. Life without Police. Related developments and other shooting reported in Seattle's CHOP, one in serious condition. New York City's Museum of National History, uh, Natural History, uh, is going to remove Teddy Roosevelt, the statue, accordingly uh, to a family request. NYPD officer suspended after video em- uh, emerged, um, apparently showing chokehold during the Queen's boardwalk arrest. And a woman suspected of burning Atlanta's Wendy's may have been Rashard Brooks' girlfriend. And a noose was found hanging in Bubba Wallace's garage stall at the Talladega NASCAR says. Well, stock futures are rising to start the week despite growing coronavirus cases and hundreds test positive at Tyson Foods plant in Arkansas. And by the way, Disney, they've confirmed their park is reopening and they've given the dates. In other news in San Francisco, protesters tore down a statue of Ulysses S. Grant, our famed general and later president who helped defeat the Confederacy because at one time he owned a slave, which he uh, freed just before the Civil War. After Grant's death, Frederick Douglass said to him, more than any other man, the Negro owes his enfranchisement. Apparently not relevant any longer. Rich Lowry says, what idiots? I guess they're going to uh, come for Sherman next. On the New York, the Teddy Roosevelt statue in front of the Museum of Natural History is being removed. In Minneapolis, both Harper Lee books and Mark Twain books are banned from Minneapolis public school. And no, the teachers were not consulted in the decision. Monmouth University is renaming Woodrow Wilson the building. Washington Post has their eye on the Redskins. Noah Rotham says conservatives saw this coming and they were relentlessly mocked for it but they were right and their foresight was based on the fullest understanding of the arguments that america's historical revisionists tacitly endorsed but never scrutinized when donald trump wondered whether it would be george washington next and thomas jefferson the week after he was treated to haughty and dismissive dispatches in the mainstream press explaining why these founders were more than just their proximity to slavery
Apparently that no longer applies. Meanwhile, the attorney general um, has removed the Manhattan U.S. attorney Jeffrey Berman. No standoff. Well, Berman was um, disinclined to resign and was subsequently fired. Wall Street Journal says people close to Mr. Barr said he had been growing unhappy with Mr. Berman for months and had been searching for a successor. There is no standoff. A.G. Barr fired Berman yesterday, or actually the president did, after giving him the chance to resign, but Berman declined to do so. Um, There are rumors, unconfirmed so far, as uh, one can tell, that the AG offered Berman the job of assistant attorney general for the civil division in Washington, but Berman declined that as well. The long of it, for Andrew um, McCarthy, from Andrew McCarthy, rather, let's take a deep breath. Congress is already demanding answers to the questions raised by Jeff Berman's removal as a U.S. attorney, who, uh, by the way, they all serve at the discretion of the president. Um, None of the people involved in this escapade is a shrinking violet. Soon enough, we'll know why this happened. So if you're interested or concerned, hold your breath. It will be investigated thoroughly. Tulsa rally, the numbers were disappointing. Was it TikTok? Well, there's some concern over coronavirus. What's the explanation? We'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. But coming up next, we're going to talk with Lawrence Nelson. Actually, we won't talk about that when we come back from this break. But after my conversation with Lawrence Nelson, who is a board-certified chiropractic neurologist at the Concussion and Whiplash Clinic in Tiger, we're going to talk about the uh, toll that uh, traumatic brain injury is uh, is having all across the country and what can what can and is being done about it is called a quiet crisis and according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 2.8 million Americans report a traumatic brain injury every year we'll talk with uh, Dr. Nelson about that when he joins us in just a few moments then we'll return to some of the news headlines so I hope you will stay with us and just a reminder that in the five o'clock hour We'll uh, resurrect a classic interview with Gary, Dr. Gary Chapman. God speaks your love language, how to feel and reflect God's love. Again, coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you know, from time to time, we've been interviewing some of our advertisers during this new normal. It's put a strain on some of them, and we want to make sure you know about who they are and what they do so that when the need arises, you know who to call. Well, joining us now is Lawrence Nelson. He is a board-certified chiropractic neurologist at the Concussion and Whiplash Clinic in Tigard. He's also an advertiser on KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish. We want to make sure you are aware of uh, this business and should the need arise, where to go. Lawrence Nelson, thanks so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, it may be surprising to some of our listeners to um, put the two words chiropractic and neurologist together. Tell us a little bit about what you do and how prevalent uh, traumatic brain injuries are. Well, a chiropractic is neurologist is a neurologist that has taken the same words as the medical neurologist, the exception of the pharmacological and surgical boards that would go along with it because we don't do those things. We're not licensed to prescribe pharmacological treatment or surgery. As far as what a chiropractic neurologist does, uh, we're more in language with what is neurology in that we're going to uh, evaluate a person and their history determine where there may be faults in the neurologic system that with their ability to live their life as they would like. So any depreciation in the nervous system 
function is going to have us uh, operating at less than the best of who we could be. Now, concussions and whiplash, I think all of us think about whiplash in the context of being in a car accident. Concussions, we think about maybe a traumatic fall. How common are these issues and how much of a deficit do they have the potential to leave a victim with? Well, uh, we are seeing a considerable uptick in the concussions caused by auto-related collisions. Uh, years ago, why the clinic was named Concussion and Whiplash Clinic is because we primarily whiplash in rear-end motor vehicle accidents, but with distractible driving uh, up as much as it is. And in 2019, more distractible driving deaths in the metro area than at any time in history. People are not paying attention as a at 5, 10, 15 mile an hour fender bender has turned into 40, 50 mile an hour rear end collision with mm. oftentimes concussion as a result. So uh, the the message there is text and drive in particular, but be alert as you're driving because at 50 miles an hour, you can close it very fast, and that's unfortunately what we see in the practice. I used the phrase uh, traumatic brain injury a moment ago. That's at the, the far end, I suppose, of a, a common concussion. But uh, these can be very serious injuries. What kinds of results occur when someone has had that kind of a serious injury? Well, actually, concussion and traumatic brain injury are synonymous terms. So they can be used interchangeably. And then they would grade the uh, concussion or traumatic brain injury as mild, moderate, or severe. Typically, we are seeing in our practice the mild to moderate concussion. Um, the concussion can be. Uh, just recently, or a concussion could have occurred 20 years ago, and a person may have been suffering for that period of time, or as they continue to age, because they're not as vital as they were as a youngster, then the brain doesn't have the capacity, perhaps, and they can start showing concussion-related signs 20 years later on what we call a false recovery, where the symptoms went away for that season, but now as that brain is winding down some, show back up again. Mm. So it could be very concerning for people because their life is typically turned upside down. And uh, we've had serious uh, concussions as people not knowing they have a job, not knowing where their room and their house is, not knowing a whole host of other things. That's a little bit more serious, but we do see always complications in memory, complications in the ability to express oneself, uh, finding words, uh, being able to listen to a conversation. Uh, and all of those things would be very upsetting uh, to a person. And uh, we in the process as soon as we uh, first talk with them. What should I do if I think I have had an, a concussion? Well, the, the Center for Disease Control is very clear on that. If you're concerned that you may have had a concussion, you want to see somebody that specializes or is an expert in concussion management and recovery. Now, there's some a series of flags that you want to be aware of that may send you immediately to the emergency room. Uh, if you're drowsy or lose consciousness and uh, an advocate sees that's happening or you're slurring your words, perhaps, or can't stay awake, uh, you've 
going to do bomb it repeatedly. That may necessitate an immediate emergency visit. But if you have symptoms for a few days and they just seem like they're not going away and you may have been to the emergency room and they said, no, you'll be fine, just go home. And, and typically what we hear is go home and, and, and turn the lights down low and then uh, when you start to feel better, re-engage in life. Well, that is a treatment plan, but that's not a functional treatment plan that's going to accelerate one's healing. So we are very careful in evaluating the person's history, doing a head-to-toe and back-again neurologic evaluation, and then all the other related issues that may occur in their life to try and begin to identify a suitable treatment program that they can follow. We also try to have an advocate or a friend come in with them on their first visit anyway, and perhaps more so, because they often what the concussed person simply can't remember. Well, I want to make sure our listeners know that if they are experiencing or someone in their family is experiencing what they believe to be a concussion or a, a head trauma of some sort, whether that's whiplash or uh, any number of other iterations, um, what's the best way for them to connect with you and uh, make that initial appointment that could possibly avoid more serious problems down the road? You bet. Well, our uh, website, concussionpdx.com, will allow you to learn more about who we are as a clinic. And on that page, there's an opportunity to request a complimentary um, phone consultation with one of the uh, functional neurologists. And we can discuss your condition right away. And with that, having the expertise of one of our doctors, they can share with you a sense of urgency if they feel that that you need to get in right away or they need to have some additional testing and they would send you out to a, an imaging center to perhaps have an MRI or if they hear some of those red flags they're going to recommend get to the emergency room right away. Yeah. But I think a call to us is 503-512-5359 or going online to concussionpdx.com and filling out the request to have a consultation is a good start to get the ball rolling. Again, that phone number, 503-512-5359 or concussionpdx.com. You can also listen for Lawrence Nelson and the Concussion and Whiplash Clinic uh, in Tigard on KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish. We really want to encourage you to support the advertisers who support uh, Christian Radio, and this is a great way to do that, especially during a season when things are just a little unusual. So uh, we are so grateful that you are a partner and part of the family of KPDQ and The Fish and that you take the time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you so much. You betcha. Thank you. 503-512-5359 and concussionpdx.com. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're taking a look at some of the day's uh, headlines, actually from the last several days. What happened with the Tulsa rally? The president had a political rally, the first in quite a few um, weeks. And this one was uh, touted to be 
rather large. We'll look at the event in Tulsa. President Trump's campaign planned for a raucous show of force at a rally in Oklahoma, but found itself in a back and forth with critics over crowd size on Sunday. The campaign looked ahead to an event in Arizona on Tuesday. President aides say blamed the news media for the smaller than expected crowds because of the coverage of protests and coronavirus infections leading up to the rally, scaring people to death, as one uh, a commentator put it. Did a prank, however, play a role? TikTok users and fans of Korean pop music groups claim to have registered potentially hundreds of thousands of tickets for Mr. Trump's campaign rally as a prank. That's yet unconfirmed, but it's an interesting uh, thought. Uh, was it concern over the coronavirus? Well, Burgess Owens points out that Tulsa is the right place and the day after Juneteenth is the right time for this rally. It's a celebration of the tenacity, work ethic, faith and entrepreneurial grit of uh, an African-American community that has overcome both white racism and liberal paternalism to achieve economic independence. Let the rally begin. Jerry Bauer says an opportunity to shift the conversation toward the heroic success of black people. Was it a missed opportunity? Trump's campaign continues to push for inroads within the, the black community for the black vote. Meanwhile, Larry Elder and Candace Owens, both of whom are African-American, are among uh, black conservatives telling their story in a new documentary titled Uncle Tom. Kevin McCullough points out that the film does an excellent job of piercing together piercing through and piecing together what happened when the welfare state and the war on poverty expanded. It broke up the nuclear family. It undermined the values of faith that family had believed, and it created an angry and uncontrollable class of voters that race pimps have gotten wealthy by controlling for the bidding of the American political left. Larry Elder serves as executive producer on the, um, uh, the documentary and is also a Salem talk show host. Well, Senator Tim Scott has expounded on Senator Durbin's token black comment, elites get away with it, he makes the point, and that certainly is the case. To the Wall Street Journal, he says, I'm just really ticked off about how casual and cavalier he gets to be as a Democrat leader to race bait in an intentional and unnecessary and unfortunate way. He doesn't think that Mr. Durbin is a racist, he stresses, but says he's adopted a rhythm and a cadence that is consistent with what sometimes the elite liberals can get away with because they're supposedly woke. And that's a problem because it just denigrates everybody who's not in their way of thinking about the world. Hence the documentary I mentioned a moment ago, Uncle Tom. 70 shot in Chicago over the weekend, 11 killed, and little news coverage among the killed, a 13-year-old girl. Chicago crime just doesn't fit the prevailing narrative, so they just don't cover it. Meanwhile, in Seattle, there was a murder in the CHOP zone as well. Officers attempted to locate a shooting victim, but were met by a violent crowd that prevented officers' safe access to the victim. Officers were later informed that the victims, both male, had been transported to Harborview Medical Center by CHOP medics. Were they actually medics or were they anyway? Hugh Hewitt says this account of events in Seattle makes clear that Governor Inslee is abandoning citizens who are owed the rule of law. The trajectory is toward even greater tragedy, and it's on the governor, as that is where the police power resides when the city forfeits it. Hmm. Uh, weren't we all on the same page that racially segregated areas uh, was a bad idea? Well, CHOP has set up a blacks-only zone. So we're turning virtually everything on its head. 
Meanwhile, President Trump says he'll refile his executive attempt to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program soon. The Daily Caller reports that Trump reported, uh, reportedly made the statement in an interview with Fox News prior to his speech in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on Saturday night. When nullifying Trump's original executive order last week, Chief Justice John Roberts stated in the majority opinion, the dispute before the court is not whether DHS may rescind DACA, All parties agree that it may. The dispute is instead primarily about the procedure the agency followed in doing so. However, Trump has not clarified how he would adjust his strategy to avoid another loss in the Supreme Court. National Review's Andy C. McCarthy writes that there is tumult in the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, where I proudly spent nearly 20 years as a prosecutor. In a nutshell, after the two men met in Manhattan on Friday, Attorney General Bill Barr announced that evening that the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Berman was stepping down. Later during the night, Berman issued a statement essentially saying, no, not going to happen. Inevitably, President Trump fired Berman on Saturday afternoon. As announced by um, uh, Secretary Barr, Congress is already demanding answers to the questions raised by Berman's removal as U.S. Attorney. None of the people involved in this escapade is a shrinking violet. It's going to come out. Joe Biden thought Juneteenth was about a massacre in Tulsa, and the media yawned doesn't matter if he gets it wrong. Juneteenth coverage on MSNBC and CNN was up 1,200 percent in 2020 after years of near silence. They didn't care until it was politically useful. And the nefarious U.N. Human Rights Council will prepare a report on systematic racism, violations of international human rights laws against Africans and people of African descent by law enforcement agencies. That's the nefarious U.N. Human Rights Council that needs itself to be investigated. And judge has declined to block the release of John Bolton's book. It will be out. What is it, tomorrow? Um, And shootings, violence, up. We do not want um, uh, history erased, says the family of a black woman who portrayed Aunt Jemima opposing the move to change the brand. There is a story behind that face. Most people don't know it. Perhaps now they will. And Dreyers is going to drop the derogatory Eskimo pie name after 99 years. Here in Portland, an American flag was used to set a George Washington statue ablaze. No surprise there. I live in Portland. Ulysses S. Grant and Francis Scott Key's statues were pulled down in San Francisco. And vandals pulled down and burned Washington, D.C.'s sole statue of a Confederate general. Theodore Roosevelt's statue, that's being removed from the Museum of Natural History. Tennessee legislature is passing fetal heartbeat bill. Unrelated, a Planned Parenthood and the ACLU are filing a lawsuit because, you know, if you can't end the beating heart of a living human embryo in utero, (laughs) it's got to be stopped. Six Trump campaign staffers have tested positive at the Tulsa rally for COVID-19 and hundreds test positive at Tyson Foods plants in Arkansas, most asymptomatic, however, which is apparently quite common. South Korea is fighting a second wave of infections, which it attributes to a holiday weekend in May. And coronavirus is weakening and may disappear on its own. That's according to an Italian infectious disease doctor. Not so sure. Is the world ignoring a Christian genocide in Nigeria? We are working on an interview uh, to talk about what's happening there. The answer is yes. Libyan uh, refugees... um, 
rather a Libyan refugee uh, murdered three and wounded several others in the UK in a knifing rampage, which is being referred to as a terrorist act. And the International Atomic Energy Agency says Iran is engaged in secret nuclear work. Again, no surprise there. 19 black Americans explain why they are conservative in the Daily Signal. It's a good read if you want to check that out. And the results of the investigation justified the relief Navy is upholding the firing of the former USS Theodore Roosevelt Captain Brett Crozier, who warned of coronavirus, the outbreak on board his ship. Again, the results of the investigation justified that relief. And rising coronavirus cases cut into business optimism, according to the Washington Examiner. And according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is tracking more than 860 institutions' plans, two-thirds of colleges are planning to welcome back students in person, while only 7% are planning to hold classes only online. Now, what the timeline is there wasn't mentioned, but USA Today has the full story. And this will fix it. Meghan Markle tells friends her instinct to leave the UK all makes sense now because she was destined to help fight systematic racism in the U.S. and she hasn't ruled out a career in politics. Oh boy. On this day in history, 1937, Joe Lewis begins his reign as world heavyweight boxing champion of the world by knocking out Jim Braddock in the eighth round of their fight in Chicago. That was a huge deal for African Americans all across the country. 1944, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, more popularly known as the GI Bill of Rights. 1970, President Richard Nixon signs an extension of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 that lowered the minimum voting age to 18. 1977, John N. Mitchell becomes the first former U.S. Attorney General to go to prison as he began serving his sentence for his role in the Watergate cover-up. He was released 19 months later. 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court in Rav versus City of St. Paul unanimously rules that hate crime laws that banned cross-burning and similar expressions of racial bias violated free speech rights. And 2012, ex-Pin State Assistant Coach Jerry Sandusky is convicted by a jury in Bellefonte, Pennsylvania on 45 counts of sexually assaulting Ten boys over 15 years. Sandusky, by the way, is appealing the 30 to 60 year state prison sentence. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Dr. Gary Chapman God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Feel and Reflect God's Love. Well, lots of people are still reeling over the, the Supreme Court decision that many described as enabling totalitarianism. Arnold Allard, he says this, you can't just proclaim, um, uh, in fact, he's quoting Martina Navratilova, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. There must be some standards and having, well, a male organ and competing as a woman would not fit that standard. Again, a quote from tennis great and longtime homosexual rights activist, Martina Navratilova, back in December of 2018. She was nearly tarred and feathered for having said it. J.K. Rowling, back in June of this month, of this year, says, woman is not an idea in a man's head. Woman is not a pink brain, a um, liking for Jimmy Choo's or any of the other sexist ideas now somehow touted as progressive. Moreover, the inclusive language that calls female people, well, uh, women with female parts and people with... Uh, 
female parts, strikes many women as dehumanizing and demeaning. Sounds rather reasonable, but these days, reason is not to be considered. Whether an increasingly important woman's movement realizes it or not, last Monday's 6-3 Supreme Court ruling has made biological reality irrelevant. And while anyone with an ounce of integrity would know that when Congress passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title VII's prohibition of sexual discrimination meant sex in the biological sense. A majority of justices swept aside thousands of years of biological reality in favor of progressive ideology. In short, the court uh, conferred upon itself both legislative powers and scientific expertise. Not the first time. Legislative powers Congress itself conspicuously declined to exercise, and scientific expertise that required the complete um, abnegation of a condition still defined as gender dysphoria among leading entities in the mental health community. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion, epitomized the Orwellian logic and rank hypocrisy. Necessary to reach such a decision, he had to do just that. The same justice who insisted the rule was based on planned or rather plain statutory commands long before transgenderism was even a topic of conversation is the one who insisted laws are meant to be understood and lived by. If a fog of uncertainty surrounded them, if their meaning could shift with the latest judicial whim, the point of reducing them to writing would be lost. Well, the latter statement was made in 2018. Two years later, Gorsuch and five other justices have subjected the entire nation to the latest judicial whim. Moreover, as columnist and Amherst College professor Hadley Arcus points out, Gorsuch's open statement regarding Harris Funeral Home versus EEOC, whereby a main, uh, rather a man hired by a funeral home was terminated due to the consternation his decision to behave and dress as a woman caused for grieving families, is nothing short of astounding. He said that Amy Stevens, the one who had been known to the world and his own wife, as Anthony Stevens, had presented as a male when she first got the job, Arcs uh, writes. Without the slightest strain, Gorsuch had simply incorporated as his own the uh, uh, predicate of Stevens' claim that he had, in fact, become a woman. The implications for the court to come down on his side, the judge would have to do nothing less than confirm as a matter of controlling fact that in the eyes of the law, Stevens was indeed a woman if he regarded himself a woman. Um, and the effects would instantly radiate outward. Stevens' colleagues would be obliged to accept his definition of himself and the pronouns that come along. If they did not, they and their employer could be accused of sustaining a hostile work environment and put themselves at legal hazard, end quote. It gets worse. Harris was uh, one of three cases brought together to reach this decision. The other two, Altitude Express versus Zarda and Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, involved discrimination against homosexuals. In other, um, in other words, the court failed to make any distinction between homosexuality and transgenderism. The Supreme Court combined the cases for purposes of the decision, and that was a very good bad reason it did so. Gorsuch's uh, reasoning collapsed when the case of a transgender individual, enclosed in quotes because the court leaves that term undefined, is inserted in the parade of hy hypothetics uh, the majority used to justify its decision. Columnist Margot Cleveland explains, rather than analyze the questions separately, Justice Gorsuch conflated the two separate classifications, analyzed homosexual employees or applicants, and then added a throwaway conclusory sentence to extend the reasoning to transgender people. That throwaway sentence will have 
enormous implications going forward. There was a reason Title VII permitted sex um, specific policies. Without them, explains columnist Kate Anderson, women could be compelled to compete with men for job opportunities under the same physical strength requirements. And more women owned businesses competing for small business administration loans would be shouldered aside if those funds are distributed according to gender identity. And then there's sports. As Title IX passed, uh, though it passed as part of the education amendments of 1972 to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, prohibited sexual discrimination regarding any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, it didn't specifically mention sports. However, it became best known for a requirement that men's and women's athletes uh, and, and their programs in high school and college be equally funded. If the court's reasoning is extended into this realm, there's nothing to stop men claiming to be women from dominating women's sports. A case filed by three Connecticut high school girls, we interviewed one of them, whose track meets were dominated by transgenders competing as women addressed that reality. By contrast, a lawsuit has been filed by the ACLU of Idaho challenging that state's Fairness in Women's Sports Act that bans biological males from participating in female sports. Which side will ultimately prevail? That's the standing question. Given the tenor of the Supreme Court, combined with the now revolutionist determination of agenda-driven progressives and the unseemly cowardice of those who should stand against it, Ms. Navratilova et al. will likely be compelled to endure the reality that having, well, male genitalia and competing as a woman will be... Well, the new standard, no matter how dehumanizing and demeaning J.K. Rowling at all think it is. Yet this decision has far more ominous implications. A man who intends to have no surgery, take no hormones, may now secure himself a gender recognition certificate and be a woman in the sight of the law. Rowling explains, many people aren't aware of this. Such insanity is possibly possible rather due to the UK's passage of the Gender Recognition Act of 2004. That act allowed people to change their legal gender, but it required a medical process to do so. Activists have been pushing to eliminate that process in favor of self-identification system, as in I am what I say I am, but are currently meeting resistance from Boris Johnson's administration. What about America? Well, the Supreme Court has apparently embraced the very same self-identification system and simultaneously precluded Congress, as in our duly elected representatives, from making any contrary decision on the subject. Yet by ruling that sexual identity is based on nothing more than self-declaration, irrespective of biology and chromosomes, the Supreme Court has moved way beyond sex. In one aspect of reality itself can be based on nothing more than self-declaration. Why not other aspects or every aspect? What could better enable totalitarian control than a fog of uncertainty surrounding everything? Sadly, that is the, uh, the case, and that is where the Supreme Court has left us at this point. Meanwhile, a coalition of conservative leaders sent a letter to the president and the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell warning that the congressional spending in the coronavirus era must stop because it's getting very close to $10 trillion, which is more than the government spent fighting the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and World Wars One and Two combined. Well, the Save Our Country Coalition, which is made up of conservative leaders, called on the president and Republican congressional leaders to stop the spending. The coalition consists of Stephen Moore, co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, Adam Brandon, and I could go on and on. Well, during a press briefing on Tuesday, they re- released rather new budget projections showing the government spending on um, is headed to, to 51 percent of GDP for the first time ever. 
The federal government has already spent trillions in stimulus funds, and the White House and Congress are considering plans to spend at least one to three trillion dollars more. Congress has already spent more than $2 trillion on coronavirus relief packages. The irresponsible Pelosi bill that passed the House a week ago would raise that spending total to $5 trillion, which is on top of the $4.71 trillion that Congress already authorized, the coalition wrote in a letter. We are getting very close to the unthinkable $10 trillion federal budget, which is more money in one single year than the United States government spent adjusted for inflation, again, to fight the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, World War II combined. The coalition noted that for the first time in history, more than half of all national income would flow through the government when you take into account state and local expenditures. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to share a classic interview with Dr. Gary Chapman, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Feel and Reflect God's Love. The book is published by Northfield Publishing. That's coming up in our next couple of segments, so stick around for that. I want to give you the latest numbers for Oregon's COVID-19 Um, 146 new cases, two more deaths in the state of Oregon. That brings the total in the in the state of Oregon, a total number of deaths to 192, 7,083 cases among 206,000 tests. Those are the latest Oregon numbers. In Washington, there have been 1,270 deaths and 28,000 cases um, and uh, some 474,000 tests. Uh, Two more people have died, as I mentioned, from COVID-19 here in Oregon, bringing the state's death total to 192. According to the Oregon Health Authority, there were 146 confirmed and presumptive cases of coronavirus announced today. Now, it's important to make that distinction, uh, confirmed and presumptive cases. There have been some reversals in those cases. Also today, Multnomah County health officials held a press conference, a news conference, a virtual news conference, to address the county's rising number of cases. And a famous um, Salem attraction will reopen on Thursday for the first time in three months. The Salem Riverfront Carousel will open at 10 a.m. on the 25th with limited hours of operation and some new safety protocols, which you just assume that in everything these days. Also on Sunday, Oregon Health Authority reported 190 new confirmed and presumptive COVID cases and one more death in the state. This was on Sunday. Multnomah County had 84 new infections, which accounted for 44% of Sunday's daily total. It marked the highest number of infections reported in one day in the county, which entered phase one of reopening on Friday. Also, Uh, It's really that simple. Face coverings save lives. That's a quote from Governor Kate Brown releasing the full list of guidelines for Oregon face mask requirements going into effect on the 24th. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. But months into the COVID-19 pandemic, the union that represents close to 15,000 nurses across the state of Oregon say protective gear for frontline medical workers is still in dangerously short supply at some hospitals. At the same time, others are doing a much better job at protecting their workers. So let's uh, insist that um, particularly those uh, who are on the front lines in our medical facilities get what they need. So what does this face mask requirement look like? According to the Oregon Health Authority, all businesses as defined in their report and to the general public when visiting these businesses in Clackamas, Hood River, Lincoln, Marion, Multnomah, Polk and Washington counties must wear 
a face mask, a shield, a face covering. That's effective the 24th. Today is the 22nd. You do the math. That's coming up. Well, a county not listed can opt into the program and insist that residents in their particular county wear them. As far as I know, up to this point, there has not been a request from a county other than those I've already mentioned. But requirements for other businesses and sectors, according to the Oregon Health Authority, they, uh, there may be mask, face shield, and face covering requirements and recommendations that apply to other businesses not listed in their specific guidance, and businesses are responsible for finding out if they're on that list. But for purposes of the guidance uh, that the Oregon Health Authority published, these businesses mean grocery stores, fitness-related organizations, pharmacies, public transit agencies and providers, personal service providers, restaurants, bars, breweries, brew pubs, wineries, taste room. Employees must wear them, uh, and those visiting those institutions must also wear them, although if you are in a restaurant and you're eating, they can be removed for that purpose. Retail stores, shopping centers and malls, ride-sharing services, phase two counties only, indoor licensed swimming pools, licensed spas and sports uh, court operators, indoor entertainment facility operators, indoor recreational sports. You kind of get the idea. Face masks are mandatory. So you can go to the Oregon Health Authority for more details, but I should mention that customers and visitors to these businesses are required to wear a mask, a face shield, a face covering when at a business unless the individual is under the age of 12. So apparently under the age of 12, uh, that's where the cutoff is, has a medical condition that makes it hard to breathe when wearing a mask, face shield or face covering and has a or has a disability that prevents the individual from wearing a mask, face shield or covering. Customers and visitors of businesses between the ages of 0 to 12, um, children under the age of 2 may not wear um, a mask, face shield, or face covering. It's strongly recommended that children between the ages of 2 and 12 wear a mask, a face shield. It's not required, but it's recommended. And that we're, uh, it's likely that physical distancing is at least 6 feet from other individuals outside their household until um, uh, that cannot be maintained. Uh, they're free to go without a mask. So that's maybe as clear as mud, but that's what the governor is saying we must do starting the 24th, which, of course, will be Wednesday. Meanwhile, a team of scientists conducting a genetic analysis of coronavirus patients found that having a certain blood type may impact the risk you have of developing the illness. That's according to a study that was released midweek last week. Well, the study that uh, appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine compared the genes of thousands of European patients and found that the type A blood were more likely to come down with the severe illness. Those with type O blood were less likely. It doesn't mean you cannot contract the illness if you are type O, but you're less likely. Now, the health workers um, uh, draws blood for COVID-19 antibody uh, testing and can determine whether or not you fall in that category. Well, the research comes after a similar study out of China published in March found that those with type O blood may be more resistant to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, while those with type A blood might be more at risk. So you might want to consider that in um, choosing how to navigate this new normal. The recent study, which consists of scientists in Italy, Spain, Denmark, Germany, and other countries, compared 1,980 patients with severe COVID-19 to several thousand other people who were otherwise healthy and had only mild or no symptoms. Researchers tied variations in six genes to the likelihood of severe illness while also tying blood groups to potential risk. I find that rather interesting. I happen to fall into the less likely category. Uh, although I'm 
following all of the uh, guidelines that have been prescribed, as I have uh, people in my household who are vulnerable. Well, under pressure from uh, the virus, schools are planning a placeholder year. That's what they're calling it. Uh, The article out of the historian uh, shines a light on uh, a school in Astoria, in the school district. The staff last week uh, got into a bus and they drove around the community to say goodbye to students. First grade teachers um, were eager for the glimpse of their students they hadn't seen in person in months. The parade marked the end of one of the strangest school years any of them had ever experienced. And, of course, that's the same experience teachers and students are having all over the country. Well, they hope to return to the classroom in September, but there is no guarantee that they will. School districts in Clatsop County are finalizing budgets ahead of the usual June deadline, and they're looking at offering some kind of blend of in-person classes and distance education, knowing they may have to pivot at the last minute. All these plans are placeholders. Well, a document prepared by the Oregon Department of Education outlining state guidance for reopening schools in September quotes Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, saying you don't make the timeline, the virus makes the timeline. Well, the number of coronavirus cases here in Oregon continues to rise even as government restrictions are lifted and the economy reopens. Insurers have informed school districts they likely cannot provide insurance against claims related to communicable disease, potentially opening school districts up to vast and expensive liability. And we are a litigious people, as you know. Oregon's budget has a $3 billion gap. School districts will eventually have to grapple with the state funding shortfall. How much they uh, don't know? Well, local school districts are anticipating 10 to 17 percent in reduction, and they expect several lean years will follow. So... The operational blueprints are written in pencil. Decisions about the uh, coming school year are uncertain. And they're saying this is a placeholder uh, year in which several options are on the table. But you won't know, they won't know until the very last minute, perhaps, which of those options will be a reality come 2020 fall schools. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Dr. Gary Chapman, author of God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Feel and Reflect God's Love. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We know because the scriptures tell us that God is love. But if God is love, why doesn't everybody feel loved by him? Why do some people claim to experience God's love very deeply while others even question whether or not he exists? The problem, my next guest says, is that some people are looking in the wrong direction. Well, we're going to be talking with uh, best-selling author Gary Chapman and his book that's been re-released, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. Well, Gary Chapman is an author, speaker, pastor, and counselor. He has a passion for helping people form lasting relationships, and he's the best-selling author of the Five Love Languages series and director of Marriage and Family Life Consultants, Inc. He travels the world presenting seminars, and his radio programs air on more than 400 stations. He joins us once again today to talk about the uh, re-release of his book, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. Gary Chapman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Georgine. Good to be with you. It's always nice to have you on the program. Well, let's begin by reviewing for those who are perhaps familiar with the five love languages and introducing to others who are not what love languages are um, and uh, why it's important, what the premise is behind that. Yeah, in human relationships, what I discovered years ago is that what makes one person feel loved doesn't make another person feel loved. 
And so we can be sincerely loving someone, but they don't feel love because we're speaking our own love language. That is what makes us feel loved rather than what makes them feel loved. So I discovered in my counseling after years of counseling, uh, fundamentally, uh, five basic love languages. And uh, they are just briefly uh, words of affirmation, using words to affirm the other person. You look nice in that outfit. Really appreciate what you did. Uh, There's acts of service doing something for them that you know they would like for you to do in a marriage that would be such things as cooking meals, washing dishes, washing cars, mowing grass, changing the baby's diaper, (laughs) anything you know the other person would like. Uh, For these people, actions speak louder than words. And then there's gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And then quality time. Giving the person your undivided attention. These are the people who enjoy long conversations, taking walks together and talking, going out to eat together and looking at each other and talking. And then there's physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. So the basic idea is that each of us has a primary love language. That is one of those five speaks more deeply to us emotionally than the other four. And so if you want to be effective in communicating love and thus meeting the deep need we have for love, you learn how to speak the other person's language. And when you each speak each other's language, you fill the love tank and you genuinely feel secure in each other's love. That's the heart of that original book. Now, how do you discover not only your primary love language, but the love language of others to whom you want to extend love in an effective way? Well, there's two or three uh, informal ways. One is observe their behavior and your own behavior. How do you typically relate to other people? If you're always giving people pats on the back and high fives, physical touch is probably your language because you're speaking your own language, and you can observe that in someone else. Or what do you complain about? The complaint reveals the love language. If you're saying, for example, in a marriage, you're saying to your spouse, I just feel like we don't have any time together anymore. I feel like we're ships passing in the night. You're complaining about not having quality time. Or if if your spouse says, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it, they're telling you physical touch is their language. So listen to the complaints, your own and the other person's. And then what do they request most often? Again, the request reveals the love language. If you're saying periodically to your spouse or to a friend, can we take a walk? You're asking for quality time. Or if you say when your spouse is getting ready to go on a business trip, Be sure and bring me a surprise. (laughs) You're asking for a gift. You put those three things together, observe behavior, what they complain about, what they request most often. You can figure the other person's love language. But, of course, you can go online and take a free quiz at 5lovelanguages.com. There's a quiz there for married couples, one for single adults, one for military couples, one for teenagers. Uh, And you take a little quiz, and uh, it'll tell you what your primary love language is. Now, in the book that we're talking about today, God Speaks Your Love Language, you take the concept of the love language and apply it to our relationship with God. Uh, Does God have a primary love language, or is he, as you put it, fluent in all of them? You know, that's the question that led me to write this book. People kept asking me, what is God's primary love language? What is God's primary love language? So I just went through the whole Bible looking for ways that God expressed his love. And, of course, the Bible's full of that. That's really the story of the Bible, Mm -hmm. God loving us. And I found God speaks all five of them, as you said, and he speaks them fluently. But here's what I also discovered. 
pretty clear examples of where God speaks our love language, and that's what draws us to himself. For example, you take the Old Testament character of Jeremiah. Here's what Jeremiah said. He said, your words came to me, and I ate them, and they were the joy and delight of my heart. (laughs) It was words from God that sunk deep into the heart of Jeremiah. And a little later in his life, when he was discouraged, he said, I'm not going to talk about God anymore. I'm just not going to speak anymore in his name. But then he said this, his word was in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. (laughs) So it was the word of God that he responded to and the word of God that caused him to speak out for God. And so there are examples in the Old and New Testaments of how people encountered God. and, And there's also examples in church history and in contemporary Christian world. And so I I give many of those stories in the book of how people actually came to Christ as he spoke their love language. Mm. Now, oftentimes we know because the scripture teaches that God is love and that he loves us, but we don't necessarily feel, which isn't the best way I suppose to determine truth. We don't necessarily feel um, that he loves us. How do we uh, better understand and recognize the love of God that is always being expressed toward us and poured out on us? Well, I think we have to look in the right direction. You know, often, especially if we're going through difficult times, we turn away from God. We say such things as, well, if God's a God of love, why did he let this happen to my friend or happen to me? And so we turn away from God, and we look at the problem. We look at the stress. We look at the pain we have rather than looking to God. The Bible's filled, Old and New Testament, with people who went through difficult times, painful times, unfair things happened to them. You either look toward God in the midst of your pain, or you look at the pain and the problem. And when you're looking at the pain and problem, you likely are going to continue to slide into depression, feelings of depression. There's no hope. Everything's bad. Even God's not breaking in here. But if you look to God, you know, the scriptures say, God said, if you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, you look in God's direction, you're going to find God because God is looking in your direction. And especially helpful if you know your love language to think in terms of looking for God speaking your love language because he will. And he likely already is. It's just that you're so preoccupied with the pain and hurt in your life that you're not listening to what he's saying. Mm. Now, in your earlier writing, you helped people to identify what their love language is. Um, Is our love language the same with God as it is with our human relationships? Um, Or can they be different and varied? I think it tends to be the same. For example... Those who have physical touch as their primary love language in human relationships are the people who typically will have dramatic conversion experiences, like Saul on the road to Damascus. It was physical. He fell to the ground. He was blinded. God got his attention. And you will hear people say even today, I was just sitting there in church, and all of a sudden my body started shaking, and I started weeping, and I felt God's arms around me. It was a physical thing for them. But not everybody has that kind of experience. You know, a quality time person is far more likely to come to God over a period of time. They start reading the Bible, maybe reading the gospel to see what the life of Jesus was like. And then they start reading Christian books, maybe going to Bible study. And then one morning in a quiet place, they just realize, I believe. 
I believe. It wasn't a physical thing. Their body wasn't touched by it. It's that this sitting down and listening to God and reading about God brought them to a place of faith in God. So I think, yes, I think our love language in human relationships tends to be our primary love language in our relationship with God. We're going to continue our conversation with Gary Chapman. Again, we're talking about his book, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. Quick break. We'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with Dr. Gary Chapman. He's an author, a speaker, a counselor. He has a passion for people and helping us form lasting relationships. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author of the five love languages, and he's the director of the Marriage and Family Life Consultants, Inc. Uh, We're talking about his book, God Speaks Your Love Language. It was originally released in 2002. It's now been revised and updated for today's generation and includes an all new chapter. So we're enjoying Uh, This revision that brings up to date uh, this very important subject. Well, let me ask you how our interaction with other people is a reflection of our interaction and relationship with God. You know, this is an interesting part of the study uh, in this book. And that is that once we become true believers, we tend to express our love to God by our love language. So, for example, if acts of service is my love language. I will express my love to God by serving other people in the name of Jesus. I'm the one that volunteers to work in the soup kitchen. I'm the one who volunteers to go mow someone's grass. Because in my mind, this is the way you show love. You show love by actions. But a words person, if if words of affirmation is their language, they will tend to express their love to God in words in their prayers, in songs, perhaps even writing uh, things or speaking. I use Martin Luther as an example of this. You know, he came to Christ because he read in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. And he was working hard to become accepted by God. And he said, when I read that, paradise broke in my soul. It was the word of truth that spoke to him. So what did Martin Luther do with his life? He poured out words to God. He wrote commentaries. He wrote hymns. He wrote sermons. He wrote the 95 Theses. It was words, 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 words. And so I think when we understand this, it helps us in two ways. One, we're less likely to condemn someone else who's expressing their love to God in a different way from us. And also, it gives us an awareness that these love languages... I can be the hands of God, the voice of God, in speaking the love of God to people if I realize that people have different love languages. So if I know their love language, I can communicate or seek to communicate the love of God in a language that's meaningful to them. So it has a lot of implications, both in our conversations with other people, as well as our heart reaching out to love God. Well, let's apply that to God expressing his love toward us. We know in his word what he says about that, and we believe it because it's God's word and he can be uh, trusted. But in recognizing the love of God that's lavished upon us in ways that we probably rarely recognize, how can we best uh, position ourselves to appreciate um, that love if we are perhaps fixed on what our language is? Well, I think two things. One, I think if we understand what our love language is, as we read the Bible, we're going to be drawn to those places where God speaks our language. For example, if gifts is your love language, 
you're going to see the things that God is giving you. For example, the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness of sins, not just material gifts, but these things that we could not have for ourselves. And if this is your love language, those things are going to deeply move you to be responsive to love God because you see him loving you. And uh, on the other hand, uh, if a quality time is a person's uh, love language, these are the people who are going to enjoy extended times with God. They can have an hour-long quiet time reading the Bible, responding to God, talking to God about what they're reading. Someone else would say, an hour? How do you spend an hour? I mean, I I, I spend 10 minutes. That's all I can do. (laughs) So uh, it becomes easier. It's more natural for us to express our love in our love language. But if if we realize there are these other languages, we can begin looking for God speaking those languages as well Mm -hmm. and realize that God loves all of us equally, and he loves us so much that he personalizes his expressions of love to us. You sort of describe that as a new dialect of our primary love language. Explain what you mean by that. And I think it, again, helps us to broaden our, uh, our understanding and perspective of God's expression of love toward us. Yeah, I think this, uh, Georgine, uh, you know, when we first become Christians and we start loving God, let, let's say acts of service is our language. Mm-hmm. We volunteer to work in the soup kitchen. So I go down there on Thursday night, I'm dipping beans, but when I look up in the face of the man in front of me, I see Jesus, because I remember Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Oh, it's so exciting to me, serving beans to Jesus. (laughs) That was 10 years ago. Okay, I still go to the soup kitchen, but now I'm not thinking about God. It's, It's just what I do on Thursday night. I go down there and dip beans. You see, it gets to be routine, and we lose the, the sharpness of it. And so what I'm suggesting is, I'm not saying stop going to the soup kitchen. I'm just saying use some other dialects of your language. Mm-hmm. If acts of service is your language, maybe go volunteer to mow the grass of someone who's in the hospital. Maybe go in the fall and rake leaves for the elderly. Go, go do some things. You know, it's the same language, but it's different dialects of that language. And when you do, it's alive, it's awake, because it has not become routine for you. And then I also suggest Maybe try speaking some of the other love languages to God. It won't be as comfortable for you as your natural language, but it, it can be really meaningful to you if you stretch yourself. Let, let's say you're not a physical touch person, okay? But let's say that you, you, want to, you want to try to speak this language. You go to a nursing home, and you're walking down the hall where people are sitting in wheelchairs. Some of them can't even talk, but they grunt, ooh, ooh, ooh. You just reach over and put your arm around them and say, I love you, and God loves you. And you can see them melt in your lap, Mm -hmm. you know, right there. Uh, So you you stretch yourself. It seems a little awkward at first, but you can learn to speak these other languages. And as you do, your relationship with God stays alive and awake and vibrant. And that's what God wants it to be. Yeah, yeah. I want to close with this uh, question about the cross. And you make the point in the book that the cross is an example of God speaking all five love languages that um, we would do well to, to recognize. Yes, and I think when you really contemplate the cross, you do see all of that in them. You know, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, what an expression of love. Those words, if you reflect on them, he's being killed by these people, and he's praying that God will forgive them. Such love. 
and, and, and acts of service, it's the greatest act of service that has ever happened in history. He paid the ultimate penalty, death, for our wrongdoing so that God could forgive us and still be a just and holy God. Acts of service. And physical touch, you know, listen, they were destroying his body physically. They were, it wasn't, it wasn't love. That, it was his love that sent him to the cross, but they certainly weren't loving him when they killed him. But when you notice the life of Jesus, you see him touching people all along the way. I mean, physically touching people. But on the cross, you see him loving his mother when he said to John, your mother, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. He's looking out for, he's doing an act of service for his mother, Mm -hmm. and he's giving John a way to express his love to God through that. So you reflect and you find all the love languages at the cross. The cross is the central event that happened in human history when God took our place so we could be forgiven and be the children of God forever. Mm -hmm. It's the wonderful message of the gospel. Yes. Once again, the book is titled God Speaks Your Love Language. It's been updated. There's a new chapter speaking to a new generation, how to experience and express God's love. Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It was great to be with you again. You keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I appreciated that Ben Shapiro in a recent column pointed out that we are facing as a nation a totalitarian moment. America feels like it's falling apart, and that's because, as he points out, it is. There are two ways to achieve unity in any group. The first is to set up a few serious standards of conduct, uh, conduct rather, policed with absolute minimum of compulsion, and then allow freedom in all other matters. This is the founding vision of our federal government. In this vision, we agree not to infringe upon one another's life, liberty, and property, and we create a government capable of preventing or prosecuting such infringements. Then, so long as we abide by those simple standards, we are free to pursue our own paths. Diverse ways of life can coexist within this broader group membership. Governance becomes largely a matter of localism. Places with uh, homogeneous values setting further standards for their group membership. But our broadcast group membership is easy to obtain and easy to maintain. The founding vision for unity presupposed a flawed human nature. People were capable of sin individually, but capable of the greatest sin when backed with the power of federal force. The founding vision for unity also presupposed an agreement on the nature of rights and liberty. No man had a right to demand anything from his neighbor. Furthermore, the founding vision for unity presupposed that our strongest bonds would exist outside of government, in our families, our communities, our churches. The founding vision has now been abandoned in pursuit of something more fulfilling, a communitarian vision of reality in which the will of the mob is perceived as virtuous, in which every man has the right to protect himself from the vicissitudes of life and the cruelties of history by demanding redress from his neighbors, in which our strongest bonds are forged at the most centralized level. This second path toward unity requires purification. This path seeks homogeneity in places of in place rather of diversity top down standards in place of localism standards for membership are not weak or broad membership cannot be obtained simply by avoiding encroaching on others life liberty and property membership can only be obtained and maintained through strict compliance with an increasingly arcane set of rules and standards politically this means demanding legal uh, demanding legal regime with heavy coercion 
Culturally, this means braying mobs of ideological enforcers casting out unbelievers into the cornfields. The second model of governance is promoted by the political left today. In this view, diversity of viewpoint cannot be allowed. Unity of viewpoint in all things is the um, predicate for all serious change. Once the group has been purified, change will require only the snap of a finger. No more gridlock, no more conversation, no more debate, no more considering a point of view other than your own. The collective can be activated quickly and powerfully. This second model of governance is totalitarian in nature, and it is toward that model that we are now moving as a society. Politically, those who deny that the collective ought to have the power to override individual rights must be punished. Culturally, they must be exiled. They must be deemed unworthy. To stand up for individual rights in this climate means to be labeled a defender of privilege. To deny the systematic evil of the United States means to betray, uh, to betray rather your moral unworthiness. The great irony is that the second model of unity, the totalitarian purification rituals we watched before us, will never achieve unity. It will achieve further division as more and more people fall short of ideological purity or refuse to bow before the ideological demands of the perpetual revolutionaries. We could agree to live with one another as individuals under the broader rubric of rights. If we don't, we won't be living with one another at all. This is the environment we find ourselves in right now and it is disturbing it's not at all clear that the old ways as described uh, a few moments ago that they will prevail in this circumstance despite the fact that one might insist that this is uh, what the founding documents and principles um, uh, insist upon and that we benefit by those have all been jettisoned without regard to um, whether or not they they stand worthy of embrace despite our flaws. Over the weekend, I was, uh, and these things uh, affect me deeply. I'm gravely concerned about the future of this republic. I'm concerned about a lot of things. But over the weekend, as I sat in one of my virtual services, I was reminded of uh, James, the first chapter, and how we shouldn't be surprised when testing and trials and these kinds of things come that make uh, the ground we stand on seem unsure when it comes to the, uh, the country that we live in. And James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, sent his greetings to them, and now we in the 21st century can also glean something from them. I found comfort in these words, and maybe you will, to, uh, you will too, as we witness the uncertainty and the violent eruptions all around us, not knowing where it will end or how it will end. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because to the one who doubts, it's like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. I'm so grateful that our hope and our future does not rest upon what happens in downtown Portland today or whether or not there are more shootings in Chicago or which movement will prevail, if CHOP will stand or if CHOP will fall. 
Well, the scripture goes on. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, uh, its blossoms falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Pause for a moment and challenge you. What is your timeline? Are you looking at just what happens tomorrow or are you looking further? Do you have an eternal perspective that puts so much of this in its proper context? When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Count it all joy. Um, And our joy rests not in the details of the circumstances surrounding us, but the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Our joy rests in him and his character, his provision, his promise, the eternal perspective he calls us to. And so we can take a deep breath and rest in him. And I hope you will do the same. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we we do know that God is calling us during this season to reflect his character to extend his grace and his mercy into a culture that is desperately in need. I hope you'll do just that. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.